chapter 8. Has anybody been in my office recently and saw the fish tank? I'm just curious. As of late? Yeah. So, you notice anything different in the fish tank in there? Those that have noticed it? Jamie, I guess you're the only one. Okay. Y'all got to go check out the fish tank. In the fish tank, uh, you got to break up the monotony every now and then. And, and my daughter loves live plants. I don't know. She loves live plants in aquariums. And so she's always been trying to get me. Well, actually, she's been bugging me to put live plants in our aquarium up here or anywhere. So finally, I ended up uh, biting the bullet and put some live plants in, in the fish tank in the office. So it really changed everything. It, it looks really cool. Although when you put pieces of driftwood in the tank, in the water, unless you boil it for like 28 hours, it's going to leak what's known as tannins. And tannins is just uh, uh, some sort of chemical that escapes from the driftwood unless you boil it out. And it makes the water look sort of like a tea color. And I know we got, we're in the south and we love sweet tea. It is not sweet tea in there, but it does make it sort of look like sweet tea. And so, but putting the plants in the, in the aquarium in the office, it's really changed a lot. It changed the look of it. The fish seem to like it. Matter of fact, uh, with those types of fish, they like digging a lot. And so one of the biggest issues I have is they uproot the plants. They're always digging. And so I'll come in the next day in the office and I have plants floating everywhere. And they're just up there in the top of the water and the fish tank. And it's like, really guys? And so I got to go ahead and plant it again. Well, unbeknownst to me, not all the aquarium plants need to be rooted within the substrate or the sand. How many people knew that? Yeah, yeah even Alyssa didn't know that. Haha. I only found out because I was doing some YouTube search. There are some aquarium plants, and all this will make sense when we're done, but there are some aquarium plants, namely the java fern, that should not be planted in substrate because the roots get most of its nutrient from the water column itself, not from the soil or the substrate. And so if you were to go in the office aquarium tank, take a look at it, you'll see there's a couple plants, their roots are just, they're out there. It looks like octopus tentacles, right? It's like hydra. You cut one off and three more grow in its place, if you will. But it's because those plants, to go ahead and have the best source of nutrition and the best opportunity to grow into a healthy, vibrant plant within the aquarium, their roots have to be able to effectively get the nutrients. And so with java ferns, they get them from the water column, not in the substrate. That's going to have some sort of relevance by the time we're done. I promise you. I didn't just sit here and talk to you about fish tanks and aquariums and plants for nothing. It'll make sense. But what I want to talk about tonight, based off Luke chapter 8 and a few other passages, is how do we get healthy? How do you and I get healthy? So with that, I want to talk about the parable of the sower. Some people have called it the parable of the soils. But we'll look at it from the parable of the sower. We're going to read Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. We read in the Bible, And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trotted down. And the fowls of the air devoured it, and some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture." 
And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on the good ground and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So what I want to do is I want to go ahead and talk about this parable. I'm sure many of us already understand this parable, have read this parable, may even have studied and exegeted this parable. But maybe there's something that God has for you tonight that maybe it's just some, some new nugget that the Spirit wants to impress you with this evening. So we're told here in verse number 4 that Jesus spake by a parable. So this is one of the literary devices to go ahead and disclose some sort of truth, a spiritual truth from a physical reality. Now, when you talk to people as far as uh, how to interpret a parable, and matter of fact, David Wright, uh, he's got a YouTube ministry out there called Barefoot Bible. And with his Barefoot Bible ministry, what his whole intention is, is to help people understand how to accurately interpret Scripture. And he has one or two videos on how to accurately interpret parables. And they're great videos. I encourage you, if you're interested, check it out. Barefoot Bible Ministries on YouTube. But I want to read something from Dwight Pentecost. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, The Words and Works of Jesus Christ, says, To properly interpret a parable, it is necessary to study the historical context in which the parable was spoken. It is necessary to consider the question or the problem of which our Lord was dealing. So sometimes we'll get to a parable or we'll get to an illustration and we won't spend time to try to figure out why is Jesus saying this? What led to him all of a sudden talking about this sower casting seeds on the ground? Many times we'll just read the parables and we'll just read them apart from what's going on in the story. And so what I want us to do this evening, before we can apply it to our life, is to look at it contextually and historically, why did Jesus begin speaking in a parable? And for that, I want to go ahead and point out first that when we get to the Gospels, specifically the Synoptic Gospels, Synoptic Gospels just are given the title to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because those three Gospels record almost essentially the same situations. You'll find this particular parable in each of those Gospels. In Matthew, it's in chapter 13. In Mark, it's chapter 4. And in Luke, it's chapter number 8. And so, what we talk about with the Gospels is, instead of just taking Luke's account with us, what we want to do is we want to try to parallel each account of the Gospels to get the entire picture, the entire story of what's happening because I guarantee you, if you saw an accident and we all drove by an accident going home tonight and every one of us saw it, if you were to write a page paper, a one-page paper on the accident you saw, all of our stories would be a little bit different. They'd have elements of truth, but they all would have a different perspective and nuance to it. As a matter of fact, if all of our stories were entirely the same, that would be suspect. That's sort of like we collaborated to make sure we told the same exact story and it was passed off as truth. And so to get a full understanding of the parable of the sower in any historical account in the Gospels, it's important to look at all the Gospel records that detail the account. And so while I'm not going to take time to go through all of them, we'll draw some of these things out as we go through tonight. Like I said, Matthew 13, 3 through 23, Mark 4, 3 through 25, and then here in Luke is chapter 8, verses number 5 through 15. 
But I want you to turn back into Matthew real quick. Go to Matthew chapter 13, because like Dwight Pentecost said, in order to accurately interpret a parable, we have to know what led to this parable being spoken by our Lord. And so with that, we turn to Matthew chapter 13. Like I said, Matthew 13, verse number 3, we read, And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. This is the parable in Luke chapter 8. Let's figure out what led to this parable being spoken. A lot of times when we want to get the context of a passage, we have to go back, not just a verse, not just a chapter, Sometimes we have to go back three or four chapters to actually get the context on why something was said. So with this, let's look. In 13 verse 1, Matthew says, The same day went Jesus out of the house. Alright, so we have to figure out what is this same day? Because it's that same day he began speaking this parable. From there, let's go to Matthew 12 verse number 46. Verse number 46 says, While he yet talked to the people... Let's backtrack a little more. Let's get to 1238. 1238. Then, then certain of the scribes. The fact that the word then is there means that this is a continuation of something from the past. So let's keep going back. Verse 31. Jesus says, wherefore. Now we're sort of getting the picture on what led to the beginning of Jesus speaking this parable. Jesus says in verse 31 in Matthew chapter 12, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Otherwise, this is the part of the Gospel of Matthew that we all refer to as the unpardonable sin. In Matthew 12, 31, we go on to 12, 38. Let's backtrack, go back forward. He's speaking all this judgment. And then in verse 38, then... Certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered. They are still dialoguing with Jesus about the unpardonable sin. Then we get to verse number 46. While he yet talked to the people. This is still the same context. This is still the same situation. Then we get to 13.1. The same day went Jesus. Jesus began speaking the parable of the sower... On the same exact day, the national leadership of Israel rejected him as the Messiah on the basis of demon possession. As Dwight Pentecost says, in order to accurately interpret a parable, we need to understand what led to the parable being first spoken. Why did Jesus say this? When we backtrack, Jesus begins this parable on the same exact day the unpardonable sin was committed. So this parable should be understood in the backdrop of that unpardonable sin in that generation. Why does this matter? Because in order to accurately understand what we're about to interpret and subsequently apply, we need to know the situation in the day. You remember the unpardonable sin. Jesus Christ was doing messianic miracles. He had even done miracles that the rabbis even taught that only the Messiah could perform. And there he did one where he healed a mute person. He couldn't speak and he was demon-possessed. And according to the Jewish leadership and the rabbis, you needed the name of the demon in order to cast it out. And the fact that this was a mute man and couldn't speak to the rabbis, this was a messianic miracle. Only the Messiah 
would be able to cast out a demon without even knowing his name. And when he did that, they claimed that he did it by the power of Beelzebub, power of Satan. And that is what led to this unpardonable sin. From there, he introduced what's known as the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Look in Luke chapter 8, verse number 10. He just got done re- saying this parable about the sower. Verse 9, his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? Jesus, and he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. This parable has to do with what's known as the mystery kingdom. Now, a mystery in the Bible is simply something that was not disclosed in the Old Testament that is now revealed. And with this being the case, what he is speaking about, he is speaking about what would be considered the church age. This dispensation where the kingdom of God would be seen and ran through the church. We see this in, if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul uses similar terminology and he sort of explains what this mystery that was in the past that Jesus is now speaking of. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of grace of God which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known until the sons of man, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Wherefore I was made a minister according to the gift of grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. So Paul even explains here as well that this mysteries of the kingdom is the mystery of the church age, and the fact that the gospel was going to be going out now to the Gentile people because the Jewish national leadership of Israel had rejected him as Messiah. So now the gospel was going out entirely universally. There were still Gentiles saved in the Old Testament. There were still Gentiles able to be saved in the Old Testament. But now God specifically has a kingdom plan to give the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul says later in the book of Romans that it brings the Jewish people to jealousy. And so with that being the case, we have to look at this in the aspect of what the parable of sower is about. Is the gospel being spread in the dispensation of the church age? What is going to be the characteristics of this period, specifically in this parable when the gospel is being spread. Now, Dr. Arnold Frumpbaum points out that there's five different facets of the kingdom. He says one facet of the kingdom is known as the universal kingdom of heaven, or in other words, the universal sovereign rule of God over all creation for all time. That's one facet of the kingdom of heaven. Another one is the spiritual kingdom. 
This would be the rule of God over the hearts of men once men become saved. And they're regenerated. Now they're powered by the Holy Spirit to live a victorious Christian life. Then you have the theocratic kingdom, which would have been in the Old Testament under the theocracy of God over the nation of Israel. Then you have the fourth kingdom, which would be the messianic kingdom, which we also know as the millennial kingdom, which is the 1,000-year physical, literal reign of Jesus Christ here on earth when Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. And then the fifth facet of the kingdom is what we're talking about tonight. The mystery kingdom or the church age. Now, as opposed to the universal kingdom, which has no ending, this mysterious kingdom, mystery kingdom, does have an ending because the church age will last up until the rapture. And then from there, a new kingdom period will begin. And so like Dwight Pentecost explained, understanding the backdrop will allow us to interpret and understand the parable to a greater degree. So the parable of the sower has to deal with spreading the gospel and specifically the church age. It doesn't have anything to do with the Old Testament. doesn't have anything to do with the messianic kingdom. doesn't have anything to do with the eternal order. It is only specifically about the church age and when we are evangelizing today. So a lot of times people want to come across and they want to, in some of these obs- some obscure, vague passages, they don't want to keep reading ahead, but they want to try to interpret it based off a verse alone. But sometimes what we need to do is keep reading the passage because a lot of times the Bible will interpret the Bible. And with this being the case, we have the parable of the sower in verses 5 through 9. But then after that, we actually get the interpretation of this parable. So as opposed to trying to infer or import our thoughts onto the text, let us just read what Jesus Christ says. It says in 8 verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Okay, So the seed that is being scattered is the word of God, is the gospel, it's the declaration of Christ as Messiah, the death, burial, resurrection, it is the word of God. He says, those by the wayside, so the sower scattered seeds, those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil and take away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. And he says, they are on the rock, they on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among the thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this world, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. Here Jesus Christ explains this parable, not to unbelievers, he explains this parable to the disciples, and to the disciples alone here in Luke chapter 8. And so, let's sort of deduct from this passage and see what's going on, and then from there, draw an application, and then carry it on the rest of this week for Sunday. Let us see. So, there is the sower. To me, since this was given directly after the unpardonable sin, to me, the sower in this period of time is Jesus Christ. At that time, Jesus Christ was declaring the gospel. He was first declaring the kingdom of God to offer the kingdom, but then he was declaring the gospel of believing on him for eternal life. 
And so I see the sower as God. Now that's been transferred to the apostles and then to those that would believe on the apostles' message later and then for you and I today. So as we scatter the seeds as well, these are some things we can expect. So we have four different categories. First, we have the wayside. The wayside is simply just the road that is traveled, if you will. Just this is the place where everybody's going along the route. And these are seeds that are scattered. And we are told here that the devil comes and takes away the word. In another gospel account, it says that it's trampled on. That the gospel, the word of God, is merely trampled on by these on the wayside. Now, when we're getting to these four, quote-unquote, soils... We would look at this as people, whether they're receptive or not receptive to the seed, which the seed is the word of God. And so we see this wayside is not perceptive, is not discerning, does not receive it. Matter of fact, if we were to look at Matthew chapter 13, verse number 19, we read, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then... Cometh the wicked one. This gives the idea of this person is a hardened individual. This person doesn't want to believe. We could see this probably as the legalistic Pharisees there that day that rejected him as Messiah. They don't want to believe he's Messiah. They are hardened and they don't want to understand. Not only there, we have uh, the rocks. Rocks in verse number 13 it says, They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. See, this is interesting because in verse 13, it says they receive the word with joy. If we go back to verse number six, it says some fell upon the rock and as soon as it was sprung up. What does it mean for a seed to spring up? It means the seed germinates. It means the seed has life, that life grows and becomes what it's supposed to be at that particular juncture in growth. Regardless of what some people will say, if you were to ask me, seeds 2, 3, and 4 are clearly believers. These are all characteristics and traits of people who believe the gospel message, and they are saved, regenerate people. Therefore, we're told in verse 13 that they receive the word with joy. You remember the time you guys say how excited you were, you know, if you were one of the emotional people like me. I was crying, you know, I, I, I don't have emotions anymore, but that day I remember it. But they received it with joy, but they have no root. And while they believe in the time of temptation, in the other gospel records it says persecution and tribulation and struggles, in those times of struggles they fall away. Now, this is not the Greek word that we would think of as far as apostasy. This is not that Greek word. This is a different Greek word that we see in 1 Timothy 4.1 where it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. This gives the idea of a deserter. Anybody that's ever been in the military, I know we got somebody in the military here tonight. In the military, there is a term called AWOL. AWOL is simply an acronym because military loves jargon and military loves acronyms. Acronym AWOL stands for absent without leave. So if you're supposed to be at work and you're not there, guess what? You're AWOL. 
When me and Rebecca were dating, I was AWOL a few times, and I got in pretty big trouble. You know, I almost got kicked out of the military, you know, and it, it, was, it was rough uh, during those days. But you have AWOL. But if you are absent for more than 30 days, your status goes from AWOL to deserter status. You have left the military, if you will. At that point, they're like, huh, this guy, he doesn't think he's coming back. So guess what? Hey, U.S. Marshals, need your help. They'll find you. They'll pick you up. And so uh, that's the idea that's being given here. That these people, these Christians, receive the gospel with joy. They believe for a while, but then when struggles come, they go deserter. They go deserter status. Because the stress and the struggles of what they're going through, it just makes them cave in and collapse. And so to everybody else, it's like, where did this guy go? We haven't seen him at church forever. We haven't seen him at the forge. And so that's where you and I as Christians, we should be reaching out to them and be like, hey, everything good? You know, hey, I haven't seen you in a bit. But this is those that fall on the rock. Now, if we get into verse 14, we see those which fell among the thorns. Those that fell among the thorns. Let's see something. In verse number, chapter number 8, verse number 7, says, Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it. This seed germinates again, and this seed has life as well. And so this is a second believer. But what's going on with him? They are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this world, and bring no fruit to perfection. In other words, these people are so engrossed either in the anxieties of the struggles of life or they're engrossed with the worldly pleasures and the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life that they're focused on self as opposed to focused on kingdom work. And because of that, they're not able to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. And John, Jesus says in John chapter 15 that if you abide in me, you can produce much fruit. These are people that are not abiding in a proper fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so they're not having an active faith. And James, uh, we, we just finished up teaching through James before Christmas. And we talked about James as a letter to believers, not about unbelievers. James has talked about having an active faith that is effective for the community and those around you. These are people that James were writing to, that they chose the world over an active faith. You see, not only that... You have the good ground in verse 15. The good ground are they which in an honest and good heart haven't heard the word. Keep it. Don't overlook that phrase. They keep it. One received it with joy. One received the word. One keeps it. In other words, this, this person guards it. This person allows the word of God to so effectively transform them and is so much wanting to be a disciple of Jesus Christ that he is carrying his cross and following Jesus daily. That he is forsaking the world and trying to live like Christ day by day. What does it say? It says, by guarding it, by keeping it, they bring forth fruit with patience. In other passages, in the other gospel accounts, it talks about fruit being brought forth 60-fold, 100-fold. This is the person that takes their Christian faith seriously and actively, and at the beam of seat judgment, is going to be richly rewarded and blessed. There are five crowns to be rewarded with. There's treasure in heaven, Jesus says. 
There is opportunity to have reigning privileges in the kingdom with Christ. This is the one that takes the Christian life seriously and wants to actively affect the world for the cause of Christ. If you were to ask me, seed, soil number one, is the, is the hardened legalistic Pharisee. Seed number two is what's known as a carnal man, a carnal Christian. You see, Paul talks about three types of men. He talks about the natural man, which is an unregenerate, unsaved person, soil number one. Then he talks about a carnal man, someone that's living in their flesh, someone that's seeking to live according to the world's standards and principles. This is a carnal man, soil number two. As well as I would argue soil number three is a carnal Christian also because he is stuck with the pleasures of the world. Soil two is stuck with the cares of the world. But then Paul brings up what's known as a spiritual man, a, Chris, a spiritual Christian. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14, Paul says that a spiritual man judgeth all things. This spiritual man isn't simply a Christian. This is a Christian that is matured. This is one that is mature in the faith, someone that's actively living their faith and seeking to live and look like Christ as best possible day by day. You see, when Jesus is giving this parable, on the same day they rejected him on the basis of being possessed by Satan, the unpardonable sin was committed. To me, Jesus is saying there are four types of people that I've been trying to reach. One, from this point forward, is the hardened person. They are not going to listen. They are not going to believe. They don't want to believe. Frank Turk says, before you get into a conversation about the gospel with somebody, uh, one good question to ask is, if all evidence points to Christianity being true, would you believe? And if they say no, that's up to you if you want to waste your time. If they say, I don't know, maybe, you got fertile soil. But this first one would be those hardened people. The second one, and we see this through the period of the book of Acts, even later, later uh, in the Gospels, is the people that because of persecution, they go deserter status. You see, we remember in the fact on John, Gospel of John uh, 1242, uh, one of the passages that I argue confession is not required for salvation based on Romans 10, 9 and 10 it says that in John 12, 42, there are some that believe, but because of the fear of being put out of the synagogue, they confessed him not. And so this is those people that they believe the gospel, they receive the gospel, but because of the stress and the persecution, they're not there yet to openly confess and try to live like Christ. Then you also have the people that are worldly, those that don't grow in maturity in the New Testament, the Pauline epistles have a whole lot to say about these people. We just read James chapter 4, verse number 4, where James calls Christians, you adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? There are people that will receive the gospel message that will choose the world's ways over the gospel ways and seek to please the world and please self instead of please Christ. And they will give an account to Jesus Christ as far as what they've done with their life. But then there's going to be those few that receive the gospel, they are saved, they're on fire for Christ. They just want to do all this kingdom work. 
And they don't care about persecution, the stresses of life. They have perfect communion with Christ. And they're producing fruit tenfold, sixfold, a hundredfold. And these are the ones, like I said, are going to be richly blessed and rewarded during the church age. And so what Jesus is saying here in the parable of the sower is, we are in a unique position right now. In the dispensation we are living in right now, we have the opportunity to produce so much fruit in a kingdom that was undisclosed to the Jewish people for the cause of Christ. And so, let's sort of apply this to us today. The rocky soil. The rocky soil. We looked at the fact that in a time of temptation or persecution, they fall away or go deserter status. But in Matthew chapter 13, verse number 21, about this soil, Jesus says, Yet hath he not root in himself. In himself. I was talking about aquarium plants earlier. You see, I have a couple java ferns in the office tank. And like I said, if you were to plant a java fern in the substrate with the roots and the dirt and the sand, it's not going to get the nutrients it needs to be a thriving plant, to get the green petals, to get all the uh, carbon dioxide that it needs. It will wither away eventually. You need to know with that type of plant where to put the roots so that it can be nourished and receive the essential ingredients to grow. Matthew 13, 21 says there is no root in himself. We need to realize that our root need to be planted in the faith in Christ, in the personal relationship with Christ, in the abiding fellowship with Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way. I'll turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse number 7. Or verse number 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so ye walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. If we're struggling with persecutions and trials and the temptations of this life, it's probably because our roots are buried where they don't need to be buried. Our roots are somewhere where we're not getting the nutrients to have a flourishing and a vital Christian life. So we have to really consider, where are my roots grounded? Are they grounded in myself? Are they grounded in my career? Are they grounded in my friends, my social media? Or are they grounded in Christ? And that's where we need to go back to John chapter 15. Abide in me and I in you, for without me you can do nothing. That we need to be tethered Intimately linked to the vine of Christ. You see, that's for the rocky soil. Then you get the thorny soil. This is the one that's choked by the cares of the world. So many times we're overcome with anxieties of life, distresses. Whether or not we're going to, you know, overcome this trial or we got bills to pay or a job we need or whatever. We're overcome by anxieties and stresses. Or maybe just buying the newest flashy thing is what draws us and it keeps taking us away from a fellowship with God. It ends up choking us out and suffocating us. And if you've ever had a panic attack, you realize there's nothing physically wrong with you when you have a panic attack. But your body doesn't know that. Your body is responding to anxiety and to stress levels. And when that happens, 
It's like all rationality, I've had them before, all rationality is out the window and all you're doing is responding. This is sort of what is happening with the thorny soil, with the stresses of the life. Are we just responding with the pressure and the trials? You see, finally the good soil. The good soil are those that produce this fruit. They're receptive, they receive the word, and like I said, they guard it. They guard it. I don't know where we are today, in the beginning of this year, but we really need to consider and just check with ourselves, and I've already done this with this, and the fact, are we soil number two? Are we soil number two where we're stuck with the rocks? And that we're being beat down with persecution and we want to go deserter? Or are we soil number three where it's like all the luring temptations of the world. Now we're finding ourselves separating ourselves from the church or from God and from scripture and reading and devotions or whatever. Are we like that? Or are we like the good soil in the fact that we are actively living our faith and making a difference in the world for the cause of Christ? I don't know which one you're at. I know which one I've found myself at. But I want to promise you, just like the roots, as long as the root is still on the plant, it doesn't matter what the plant looks like. That root can grow back. As long as there is that root, you just need to get that root, the nutrients, for it to flourish. And if we're saved and we're believers and we are rooted in Christ... It doesn't matter which soil you find yourself in. What matters is what you do with the information at this point. Are we going to look for the nutrients in the water column or in the substrate where it doesn't belong? And that's really what I wanted to bring up tonight, the parable of the sower. So, it's never too late to be resuscitated if we find ourselves choking and starving for air. And so, parable of the sower... Remember, same day as the unpardonable sin, that is why Jesus began speaking in parables. That's why he spoke that particular parable and all the other seven after it. It all had to do with the unpardonable sin. And that in this day and age, in this church age dispensation, you can expect on Christians that are struggling with cares and anxieties of persecution, struggling with uh, worldly temptations, or being fruitful. For those of us that are being fruitful, I send you on a mission to find those that are on the rocks and the thorny soil. Try to find out, how can I help you? How can I encourage you? How can I lift you back up? How can I reroute you so that you can get the nutrients to be an active, vital Christian for the cause of Christ? Amen? Amen. God, I thank you for this evening and just for... Uh, the parable and the application that we have today as well. I pray that you would just allow the Spirit to just work in us individually and allow us to just consider uh, where we are and what we need to do. And Lord, if there's somebody that you burden us with to reach out to and find out, hey, you know, what's going on? Just looking out for you. Uh, just give us clarity and discernment in that as well. And we just pray that you would just release us with your blessing. Give us eyes to see and, and just an ability to feel for the community around us. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.